tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, we are back with our special guest segment. And we had Lisa Peace with us a few months ago, but now that we're commercial-free, I wanted to do this right. It was such a great interview, and we got such a great response from it that we wanted to bring her back. So let me set this up, because I know a lot of people are familiar with the JFK assassination, and we've, of course, done many, many shows on that. His younger brother, Robert F. Kennedy, of course, also assassinated, but not as many people familiar with the details. So here's a little bit of a background. On June 5th, 1968, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy was mortally wounded shortly after midnight at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Earlier that evening, the 42-year-old junior senator from New York was declared the winner in both the South Dakota and the California presidential primaries in the 1968 election. He was pronounced dead at 1.44 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time on June the 6th. Now, that was about 26 hours after he was shot. Now, we have only one person that has ever uh, been tried, also convicted, of being involved in the death of Robert F. Kennedy. Of course, the infamous Sirhan Sirhan, we are told by history and by the legal system that he was the lone shooter. Now, no one disputes that he was there. It's not even disputed that he had a gun and that he fired shots. But the question is, is he, was he acting alone? He, to this day, says that he still does not even remember being there. And a fascinating discussion tonight as we welcome back to the program author and researcher Lisa Peace. Her book is A Lie Too Big to Fail. Lisa, welcome back. It's so good to have you with us again. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. I don't know if I did that justice, the introduction there, but for those that are maybe too young or just are not familiar Tell us a little bit more. Let's set it up because we've got no commercials tonight and we can go 45 minutes so we can take our time here to set the stage of that night where this all happened. Tell us what was going on there. And uh, it was an exciting night, right? Because it was it was sort of beginning to to become the the, uh, I mean, it was beginning to become obvious that RFK was going to clinch the nomination. Right. Now, in, in 1968, delegates were really cho- <laughs> excuse me, delegates were really chosen at the convention, um, similar to what we saw happen in 2016, where it didn't really matter what people voted in the states. But California had a big 
had a big sway at the convention. So leading California, and he was the senator from New York. So he basically had the two biggest states uh, in his pocket. So there was a really, really strong chance that he was going to win the nomination. Plus, everybody still remembered JFK. He'd only been killed five years earlier. And when RFK had spoken at the convention in 1964, uh, just before LBJ spoke, the audience there gave him a 20-minute standing ovation. I mean, he tried to interrupt them, and they cheered him for 20 full minutes. And you can actually watch all 20 minutes of him standing there being embarrassed and humbled, you know, as the the thing is going on on YouTube. It's there. Uh, so anyway, so it was he was definitely a shoo-in, and people were very excited because they had lost one Kennedy, but here was their chance to reclaim Camelot, if you would. And he was a young and, man. Uh, I, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. and just right. He was so young. I mean, we don't really even think about, I mean, today we're like, you know, voting for 80-year-olds for a president. I mean, we don't think about 42 years old. 42, that's just, right. I mean, barely, barely uh, so young. a young man. I mean, in today's world, you're, you're still living yeah. with your parents in the basement. At 42. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. It's true. So, yeah, it was it was a big deal. And something else I learned in my research, because campaign events today are fairly informal. You know, people go in jeans and maybe a jacket or, you know, maybe a dress, maybe not. But in those days, people got dressed to the nine. And, you know, it's people who were, came in jeans or, you know, a dumpy dress, really stood out to the crowd. And I didn't understand that until I talked to some of the witnesses. This was a very formal affair. There was a public celebration downstairs because the hotel had two main levels. And by two main levels, they were both street level. <laughs> but one was street level on the north side and one was street level on the east side, if that makes any sense. It's kind of on a little bit of a hill. Okay. So you sure. can enter at street level, go up a set of stairs, and still be at street level. Right. Very odd, like an Escher painting. But uh, downstairs was the public party. Anybody could go to that. And Kennedy was supposedly going to go down and speak to that crowd after his speech. So there was good reason to believe that he was going down there. And in fact, there were a line of, you know, Kennedy girls lining the path to the stairway that led down to that other room from the back of the stage. But the other thing that Kennedy usually did every time he was at a stop is he stopped to talk to the printed press because this was the day where television was in its heyday and radio and people started ignoring the print reporter. And Robert Kennedy had actually been a reporter. So these were he the newspaper. on the whole Palestinian thing. These were the newspaper yeah, were people. The he, he, he made a point. <laughs> right. These are the uh, guys who... Who he made exactly. a point of like separately, separately meeting with them because he didn't want them to be forgotten. Just to mention one thing, I've got a right. little bit of line noise. I don't know if there's anything on your end, if maybe you could talk more directly into the phone or if you're near something, maybe a computer's causing a little bit of static or something. But in any case, I can hear you like 90%, but just a fading in a little bit in and out. But this is, this is key because where he decided to, go to like what would be a side room or like a kitchen area. Isn't that right? Where this is where the print reporters were. Right. There was a shortcut from the backstage area to the print reporters room, the colonial room, and it cut right through a little serving area off the main kitchen that was called the pantry. And there was a big ice machine in there and there were three long steam tables 
serving tables where people could stage stuff to take to the rooms or out to banquets or whatever. And so it was primarily a kitchen workers area. And Kennedy had come down from the fifth floor where he was staying through the pantry on his way to speak. And no one knew for sure until literally in the middle of his speech, whether he was going to go downstairs next to talk to the ambassador crowd or whether he was going to go through to the print reporters. And the thing is, if you knew Kennedy, you knew he would probably not leave the hotel till he talked to the reporters. So if you were a betting person, you would have bet that he would come at some point to there. And there was only a couple ways there. One was through the big crowd where he'd be completely unprotected and anybody could have sidled up next to him and shot him. Or through the pantry where there were very few people and they had guards stationed at both doors so that anybody coming in could be stopped and checked. They had to have badges to say they were with the media or with the Kennedy campaign or clearly working for the hotel or else they couldn't be there. So then the question is, well, how did Sirhan get in if they were checking? Well, that's an interesting question because one of the guards who was supposedly checking for badges and supposed to keep people out was a guard named Thane Eugene Caesar, who just died recently. I don't know if you heard that. Mm, no. Um, he died about a month ago. And Robert Kennedy Jr. called me because he lives not too far from me. And he said, Lisa, Thane's dead. Like, I'm going to do an Instagram post. Can you get over here? <laughs> so I brought my computer and some books and I ran over to his place and we did word counts. And you know, it was his language because he hasn't read my book yet. And I'm like, we have a difference of opinion because he hasn't read my book yet. <laughs> and we, we might get to that in these 45 minutes. Yeah, so that is in interesting that you he, have the connection he, with, with, with his son. Um, I want to talk about that, that scene, though, and, and help me. You know, I, I have this vision in my mind of what that scene would have been like in that kitchen area. I'm almost comparing that uh -huh. to what happened with Jack Ruby and and Oswald. I, I know it's kind of conflating the two. No, kind of conflating actually, the two might be yeah. kind of crazy, but just to think, this is a secure area. So just like people exactly. said, well, how in the world did Jack Ruby get in there to get to Oswald? It's the same kind of a situation. And you're talking about right, a presidential candidate. And at that time, did they have officially like Secret Service protection with them, or was it more no. like so in informal, fact, just police? In fact, the, right. The Secret Service protection actually started for candidates after RFK was killed, right? Uh, so that that couldn't happen again. So because they always had protection once they won the nomination, but until they won the nomination, they didn't used to protect them. And Obama definitely benefited from that because. There were a lot of death threats when he was running. Right. So, you know, but that happened because of RFK. So, yeah, that's a really good analogy because, again, it's a secure area, it's a small area, and it was supposed to be a quick trip. I mean, you know, you could cover the pantry in about, and I've been in the pantry, so I can actually say this. I'm, I'm thinking maybe 10 strides at most. It's not a long trip. But because people, you know, thought he might be coming that way or knew in some cases that he was coming that way, the pantry was actually really thick with people. There were at least 70 people, according to the police log, and I found at least one person who was provably there, who the police, they misunderstood what she said and thought she was saying she was outside when she wasn't, and so they didn't put her on the official list. And one other quick thing, you you were too. in the you were in the pantry. That that whole hotel is gone now, is that right? 
Yeah, and I was in the hotel several times, but I only got into the pantry once. And it was, you know, small and, you know, of course, the steam tables weren't there, but the big ice machine was there. And uh, and there was a little booth in the back of the room where I thought it's like a little phone booth with a closed door. And I thought, wow, somebody could have been hiding in there. No one would have even was seen it. That. Was it ostensibly so, on? Uh, was it on change that that little room since the assassination? Was no, there, unfortunately, did they leave it, it on change? Changed. No, they had they had replaced the door frames. They had replaced the ceiling because, according to the official bullet count, one of the bullets that was fired was lost in the ceiling, and so. Some point, somebody actually replaced the ceiling. I guess so. No one could go looking for the lost bullet. Wow. So that was kind of odd. Yeah. So but, things uh, were suspicious. I there, mean, at a, at a minimum, it was suspicious that Sirhan Sirhan could be in that area because he had no legitimate business right. to be there. He was not a reporter. Right. He did not have press credentials. He was not an employee of the hotel. He was not a security right. person or a police officer. He, he had no reason dressed, to be in there. He wasn't dressed like this. Yeah, he didn't. He wasn't in costumes. Not like because there was somebody who actually did don a discarded waiter's you know uniform and put it on so he could sneak into the pantry. But that's not what Sirhan did. Sirhan was just in his blue jeans and a blue velour shirt. And, you know, the the kitchen people, for the most part, know the other kitchen people. And, you know, it's clear he wasn't part of the crowd. And and so, yeah, it's suspicious that he even got to hang out there as long as he did. Somebody even said they saw him arguing with the guard, which doesn't really sound like Sirhan. And here's the thing. A lot of people saw a guy who looked very much like Sirhan. They were sure it was him. But that guy was in a white shirt, black pants, and had a noticeable acne condition. Sirhan did not have acne, not mm. at that age. He was 24. But this other guy was a little younger, but he looked so much like him that a lot of people confused him, as I talk about in my book. And Sirhan, I, I read a little bit about him again today, a tiny guy, like 120 pounds, five foot five. So, I mean, right. do you think his unimposing, wiry. yeah, do you, do you think his, his, his unimposing stature was, helped him to get back in there that they thought this little guy, he probably is a worker or something. He, he, he just, he looked on threatening as, as an individual because he was so small. Right. And he was. It, you know, most people would tell you that Sirhan was incredibly polite and very soft-spoken. And so, yeah, he wouldn't have seemed like a threat to anyone. And, uh, you know, which is why what happened is all the more remarkable. And there were people in the pantry. There was one young man who was behind Kennedy, and he had, or even before Kennedy came in, he worked at the hotel. So he knew the people, and he noticed this real pretty girl in a white dress with dark polka dots, <laughs> and she was talking to Sirhan. He didn't know at the time, of course, it was Sirhan, but he was talking to a dark, curly-haired guy, and and the the Sirhan was basically standing on a serving tray holder. So that put him about, I want to say, a half foot, maybe three-quarters of a foot up off the ground. And she was also standing on it, kind of holding him there. And then later, according to Sirhan's, uh, Sirhan has had no conscious memory of what happened in the pantry. He, he does remember going there in pieces. He remembers, you know, 
not so much being arrested, but being choked in the pantry. That kind of brought him to, and for a minute, he was like, what am I doing here? Oh, my God. You know, I have a gun. Oh, my God, somebody shot. You know, so that was like his first realization. But if you listen to the police tapes, and I did, and I read the transcripts, and it's funny because the FBI transcribed the tapes and the DP, the, the um, LAPD transcribed the tapes, and the transcripts don't exactly match. So it's kind of funny to go back and forth and see, you know, who picked up what. But uh, in any case, it's very clear that Sirhan really is in an altered state. That's the only way you can explain it. It's in some sort of an altered state. It's either drugs, alcohol, or hypnosis. There's really no other way to explain how completely out of it. Or, or he could, I guess, be insane, but all the medical evidence ruled that out. He had brain tests. You know, he had psychological tests. He was not insane. And those who said he was paranoid schizophrenic were simply trying to justify how this otherwise sane person had, in their mind, killed Robert Kennedy. No one uh, on the defense or the prosecution's psychiatrist team ever considered that Sirhan might be innocent in some way or might have been used or might not have even killed him, as I argue in my book. Because, as you know, yes, Sirhan was standing there firing a gun, but I, I believe from the evidence that he was firing blanks. And I'm not the only one to come to that conclusion. Bill Turner, who was a former FBI agent and one of the first people to write seriously about the case, came to that conclusion, too. Um, and that makes it more difficult because there's plenty of bullets to go around. I mean, there's at least 13 that we can readily identify. But there appear to be more that are hinted at from the record. And the reason I say at least 13, well, the police gave us the first date. Uh, Kennedy was shot four times. Five other people had bullets removed from them. Two bullets were either removed from Kennedy or in, lodged in Kennedy. So there's seven bullets, and then one was supposedly lost in the ceiling. And they they had to do that because there were at least three ceiling tiles, I mean three holes in a ceiling tile. And I think a picture of that had been made public, so they knew they couldn't deny that. So they said, well, one bullet went into the ceiling, ricocheted back down, ricocheted into one of the victims, but the other one just went up and kept going, and we never saw it again. And how so many rounds could how many out. rounds could his gun have held? It was a twenty two caliber, is that right? Yeah, it yes, it could only hold eight, and uh, at the most, um, somebody who's a gun expert had told me, well, you know, there might have been one chambered. Technically, it could be nine, but the problem is, like I said, there's like thirteen bullets, so you need two shooters no matter what, and. Uh, there are, the reason we know there are extra bullets is there were four holes in the pantry door frames that Kennedy walked through. There were two in the center door frame and two in the left door frame if you're facing Kennedy as he walks in. I guess I would call it the south door frame and the center. Um, and we, we know those are bullet holes because the police took photos of them and pointed at them. And, and what's interesting is the sheriffs had actually beat the LAPD to the scene. The sheriffs were right next door counting the votes, believe it or not. The votes were being counted by computer for the very first time at the IBM building right across the street from the Ambassador Hotel. So when they heard the call shots fired, they just ran over and right into the pantry, and one of them evidently dug a bullet out of a wall, and we know that because 
he circled it and he initialed it and there's a photograph of it. Now that's the standard procedure for what you do on bullet recovery. One could ask, if there was no bullet, why did he circle it and initial it? Well, what's you know, interesting to me too is uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm a I'm a gun guy. I've grew up with guns and and all of that. And and the 22 caliber um, is really the smallest handgun that anyone would carry. It's a tiny gun. The rounds are very. Uh, it, it's it, the the mob used to use a 22, but only at super close range. So when they would assassinate someone, it'd be like they get up behind him and shoot him in that right, you know, point blank range with a 22 caliber. But if you were going into a crowd and wanted to shoot someone with a small gun like that, I mean, it, if you're not at super close range, I mean, you could theoretically hit someone multiple times with a 22 round. And they would still live even back in that day and age. It wouldn't be a fatal round like a larger caliber would be. So it would have the advantage of being smaller and more concealable, but would have the disadvantage of having to be at really, really close range. So this guy who's totally dressed inappropriate, has no business to be there, no credentials and all of that was gambling that he would get that close to be able to take that shot, which seems highly unlikely to me. And Right. And then you have to ask, why would this kid who actually didn't hate Kennedy, he actually liked Kennedy. He was upset that he, you know, and whether this is, how do I want to say it, a real upset or a planted hypnotic upset is arguable. But supposedly he was upset at Robert Kennedy because he had agreed to send bombers to Israel. That's the official story. And Sirhan basically said that, you know, in court, because that's the what his lawyers basically got him to say under their hypnosis, which was very much like leading the witness. If you, if you read the transcripts, it's kind of appalling what they did. Um, so, but even, even so, so if he's planning to, I'm going to go kill Kennedy. First of all, he had no way of knowing, you know, where Kennedy would go. He wasn't following the campaign. He's not a political insider. He wouldn't know anything about the printed press. You know, but he, he was clueless in that sense. So it would have had to have been sheer luck that he happened to be standing right in the spot. And then there's the question of the girl who was like holding him on the tray. And then there's information later. She looked up to her right. And believe it or not, three credible witnesses, four, at least four credible witnesses saw a shooter on the table. That could not be Sirhan because he was not on the table. The people who saw Sirhan fire and could identify Sirhan said he was standing on the ground right in front of Kennedy and that his gun muzzle was about three feet in front of him. Now, of course, the autopsy evidence says Kennedy was shot from not more than an inch and a half behind the right ear. That's well, a that's mob a, hit. That's a serious That's, that's a mob hit with yeah. a twenty two. That's, that's exactly like. right, the right? template of a mob hit. Contact range. Yeah. And not only that, Kennedy was shot four times from behind, not just once. And Sirhan was tackled after his second shot. So there's no way Sirhan could have made those shots. There's just no way. He's too far away. He was in front of him. And again, some people say, oh, Kennedy turned and put his back to him suddenly. No, that's simply not true. Kennedy actually put his hands up in front of his face because he saw a shooter. <laughs> you know, he was defending himself or right, he saw it. Right. Unfortunately, he put his hands up and somebody shot him three times under the the armpit, the right armpit, and behind the right ear. Now, whether that was one shooter or two, you know, that's a bigger debate. 
we could get into that or not later. But the fact is that Kennedy was shot from most of the shots were at like a quarter of an inch range. If you read the actual uh, results from Dwayne Wolfer, the LAPD criminalist, he multiplied it out to three quarters of an inch. And then he like multiplied it by three again randomly to make it more like, you know, four inches away. So but that we're not, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be, like contact shots. I don't want to be too subtle in what we're saying here so that people get what we're saying. And of course, we want them to get the book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, which is over at Amazon, folks. You can get that, A Lie Too Big to Fail, which is going to get into so much more detail on this. But what we're saying here, and, and correct me, uh, Lisa, if, if I'm articulating this uh, wrong, that we're basically looking at the same template as the JFK assassination. We have a quote-unquote shooter, Sirhan Sirhan, who is then to be responsible for this when yet there was other people involved. And in, in his case... Um, maybe he was hypnotized. Maybe it was drugs. So, in some way, this guy who is a For tiny, <laughs> yeah, tiny guy, five foot five, a a horse racing jockey, a little guy, um, who had no criminal history. Is that right? Correct. And he had no, you know, public reason to do this. There was no. I mean, he wasn't like a known hater of. The Kennedys, and there were so many other people. I mean, that to me, this is the bigger issue. There were so many other people that didn't want RFK to become president because, uh, of course, right. I believe he would have continued on with the policies of his brother largely, and that would have been, uh, you know, going after, uh, you know, the the deep state, the intelligence community, um, his continued uh, pursuit of of organized crime. All I mean, there were so many people that were not happy with RFK. We can make a list. Uh, the, the the unions. Right. I mean, <laughs> the there were so many people that right. this little guy, Sirhan Sirhan, for him to be the shooter, it it just seems improbable it's on so many physical. levels. Right, and the physical evidence just prohibits it. Outright prohibits it. And when I say Sirhan's gun muzzle is three feet away, different people saw a gun closer to Kennedy, but not one of those people could identify the gun holder as Sirhan, because obviously somebody did get up close to Kennedy and shoot him at point-blank range. But there were, again, four credible witnesses who saw both Sirhan and Kennedy at the same time. And so I gave those witnesses the highest weighting and, you know, others had to match what one of those four saw before I'd even consider that they saw Sirhan. Because a lot of people said I saw a gun, but I didn't see who's holding it, or I'm not sure I could identify it because I didn't really see his face. Um, and, and here's the thing. There were people running guns out of the hotel right after the shooting. So who were they? <laughs> you know, were they like a second set of lone nuts who was like, oh, Sirhan got him. I guess we don't have to. Let's take our guns out. <laughs> just, so so explain what what are you saying there? <laughs> there were people, there were other yeah. people that were, were seen. Uh, there were other people that were, were seen yeah, to be like armed three, that were also there, that that they, they were right. noticed and, as and also being And literally running from the pantry, running from the pantry with guns partly covered under a coat or a poster wow. or, you know, a piece of paper, you know, they describe the covering differently, but they're like three witnesses to a guy who had a gun that was, you know, like a sawed off shotgun type right. length gun. 
in something that was slightly covered, but not covered enough because you could see the gun sticking out. Some people saw that the stock, the handle. Some people saw the nose of the gun as this guy ran by. But he ran out the south end, which, by the way, is the same place, the girl in the polka dot dress. So after this girl in the polka dot dress is seen with Sirhan Moans before the shooting, a few seconds later, she's seen bursting out the back fire escape on the south side of the hotel, the what would that be, 8th Street side, um, running down the stairs yelling, we shot him, we shot him. Now, people say, that's, that's, why would she say that? Well, I believe that the guy she ran right by at the top of the stairs, a man in a maroon coat, and I talk about this guy in my book, it's, he was behaving suspiciously, and he caught the attention of the wives of two NBC producers. And right afterwards, the girl, like, runs by him shouting, we shot him, we shot him, like, it's over, we did it, it's time to go. And she and her companion, who was a guy in a gold shirt, ran down the stairs past a woman named Sandy Serrano. And Serrano heard her saying, we shot him, we shot him. She said, who did you shoot? You know, thinking it's some bad joke. And she said, Senator Kennedy, and kept running. Now, Sandra Serrano, again, is thinking this is a really bad you know, off-color joke. Right. She goes up and asks, you know, somebody, was Kennedy shot? Actually, she goes down the stairs and asks, was Kennedy shot? And no one downstairs even knew yet. So they're like, lady, you're crazy or you're drunk, go away. No, of course not. And that's when she goes and calls her mother and, you know, is all confused. And then I think it's her father that she ends up talking to who tells her on the, the TV that Kennedy's been shot. And that's when she learns of it. So then she gets off the phone and one of the first people who finds her is, or that she finds is actually an assistant DA. And she goes up and she tells him her whole story. And she said, I saw three people go into the hotel from behind. And then two of the three came running back out. She described the third one exactly as Sirhan. Blue shirt, you know, uh, blue pants, about 5'5". Five, five. She thought he was Mexican instead of Arab. Curly, dark hair. You know, she, she just described him to a T, but of course she didn't know who he was, and she hadn't seen TV. It wasn't until the next day when she saw a photo, and she's like, oh yeah, that's the guy. You know, and another, she, that's, that's another parallel to the, uh, to the JFK, which is the you know, the, the Oswald lookalike, the second Oswald. So there's that whole element The the girl in the polka dot dress, um, never, we never had a picture of her, right? Uh, we didn't, we don't know who, to no. this day who and that is. There's is an author. Yeah. There's an author who thought it was this girl named Elaine Neal, uh, based on her family thought she might've been involved in, Supposedly she had been at the Ambassador Hotel and had worn a polka dot dress. But I saw pictures of her and she just does not match the girl described. And when the pictures were shown to Sandy Serrano, she goes, that's not the girl. Now, somebody else later showed her those pictures and a bunch of pictures. And of those pictures, Elaine was the closest to the girl. But that's a far cry from saying that was the girl. And her first instinct was, no, that's not her. And it's clear to me because one of the very odd characteristics that all the witnesses saw on this girl was that she had a turned up kind of a pug nose or a like a Bob Hope ski slope nose, as some of them called it. And and somebody else said I thought her nose was broken. People who saw this girl, the first thing they remembered was her nose. And Elaine Neal has a very normal nose. <laughs> So it's like, you know, unless you had a nose job. Well, and if somebody, and I would also, I would also think, and and correct me if you disagree, 
if you were in that room when that happened, and let's say you ran away just for out of fear, that you would later go back to the authorities and say, hey, I was there, and if you need to question me, you know, here's what I saw or what I know, to just disappear into the night and to never uh, come forward yeah, is, very is bizarre as well. Now, Sirhan Sirhan today is a 75-year-old man, so not many years left on this earth. He's still living. He's still in prison. Um, I had heard when you were on, I believe, with George Norrie, there was some talk about maybe there was going to be an opportunity for you to get to talk to him or interview him. And I know that that Robert Kennedy Jr. did actually get to meet him. Is that right? Yeah, and I was the one who put Robert Kennedy in touch with him. Um, I, You have to basically go with his lawyer to see him. It's like it's not enough to go with a family member because I know Munir and you know, I've offered to drive him down, but we would literally have to wait for his lawyer to be in town. That's how strict the security is. And I've also thought there's not anything new to find. Sirhan has told everything he knows and remembers, you know, over and over, which isn't much. And, and so I also, especially when I was working on the book, I didn't want to be influenced by anything he might say to me personally. I really wanted to figure it out from the records. And I and I honestly I believe him when he says he doesn't remember. They questioned him. They said, "Do you know what car you drove?" And he's like, "I don't remember." They said, "Are you married?" And he said, "I don't remember." How do you not know if you're married? <laughs> you know? Well, you know the I thing. Mean, the thing is, I I, I think I think everyone knows, even as liberal as California can be with its releases. I think one of the Manson. Uh, killers got out of prisons, uh, but so 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 even even with all that, oh even as liberals, this guy he, he's never getting out. He is never, and he knows he is never ever getting out alive. So what reason would he have to continue to lie? Uh, you would think that exactly. it would be better for him to tell his whole story and and up, right, yeah, right. this is what I did, and this is why I Clear did it. And, yeah, or, yeah, especially a guy yeah. who did it. I mean, but political really political assassinations, I mean, yeah. <laughs> political assassinations are done for you know a reason, and part of the reason that it happens is because you want to further your cause and and be able to use that platform to exactly. say this is why I did it, and this is what I, my purpose was. Right. And he's never ever uh, changed his story. That he didn't not only right. I didn't do it, I'm innocent, but I I don't even remember it. That's he's maintained that story. Well, and from I, the I beginning. will say he is not he did not say he was innocent because he didn't know he was innocent. It's only in later years that he started to realize, oh, my God, I might actually be really innocent. He had no memory. So he relied on the people around him right. who said, well, everybody said you shot him. And so he took responsibility and he's like, oh, my God, I feel terrible. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish I hadn't done that. He, you know, yes, he confessed in that sense, but it wasn't from I did it and here's why. It's like, I guess I did it because everybody told me I did it. And then having that horrible understanding, he wanted to give it some meaning and a reason. He's like, well, if I'm going to go to jail for life, then I'm going to use this to speak up for my people, the Palestinians, because he was a Palestinian. And this was before the big, you know, Palestinian, Israeli, uh, well, it was one year after the Six Day War, but that was, you know, against the Arabs, but it was before like Palestinian terrorism. In right. fact, 
one terrible author wrote this book called Sirhan, the first terrorist, you know, the first Palestinian terrorist, which is absolutely ridiculous. And like I said, if you if you met the family, they are just the sweetest, kindest, nicest, polite, you know, people. The mother really raised them well, and and you know, it's just. That's why the neighbors were like, it's just impossible to believe that Sirhan did that. And, of course, they always say that about Jeffrey Dahmer. He was so nice. He was so quiet. But in Sirhan's case, it's a much wider swath of people yeah. who felt that way. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It, yeah. it doesn't fit in a lot of ways. Now, you say that RFK Jr., uh, his son, who himself is now up in age, you know, um, how, how old is he now? Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I've seen him on television. He's yeah, he's yeah, in his, he's in his mid sixties. So he's yeah. he's up in age, but your your uh, discussions with him have been um, a little bit about the case. But you're saying his view is still that it was Sirhan Sirhan. Yeah, he's not persuaded actually, at all to think there was more to it than that. Oh no, 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 that's not true at all. Yeah, he doesn't believe Sirhan killed him, and that's why he wanted to meet him. Oh, okay, kind of I stand corrected. Yeah. And yeah, and he said, I don't think you, you know, he said, I, I know you didn't kill my father. And Robert Kennedy thinks that they and Eugene Caesar, the guard who was literally holding Kennedy's left, or actually with his left hand, Caesar was holding Kennedy's right elbow. So if you want to shoot somebody under the arm, no one had a better angle because he was right up next to him and he was holding him by the elbow. He could literally hold him still and kill him. Now, some people believe that's exactly what happened, and, and Robert Kennedy is in that camp because he hasn't read my book yet. <laughs> he right. promised me he would. He's in the middle of his big Monsanto case, and he truly is interested in the case. I mean, you know, we did have long talks, and I just I didn't want to get into the weeds with him because it's very complicated, uh, you know, what actually happened. But from my research, it looks like Thane held him and shot him three times under the arm, but he also held him. So that some other guy who also happened to look a lot like Sirhan, because he really fooled a couple of witnesses, except that he was in a, a white busboy uniform, which Sirhan was not in. And that guy got right up to Kennedy's head and shot him. Now, tell me and about I had this. A witness say, Lisa, yeah. Tell me about this Fane. Okay. I, I want to get this name down. I, I, are you saying F like in Frank, A-N-E? <laughs> no, it's T-H, like the okay. Fane. Thane, yeah. T H A N E. Thane Eugene Caesar. Exactly. Thane Eugene Caesar. Okay. And, uh, and and his right. And his and, purpose uh, for being back there. Tell us again. Why was he back there? He was a last minute uh, supplement to the hotel security. They knew they were going to have more people than the hotel security could handle. By the way, the hotel security manager was former LAPD. I thought that was interesting. Wow. And so they ended up calling a security, a separate contractor to come and supplement their thing. Now, Dwayne Wolfer, who was the criminalist who looked at the evidence and lied his eyes out about a lot of it, um, ended up working for a security in his later years. <laughs> so there's some weird uh, interesting And I'm seeing all these news stories here. Between uh, the LAPD says... and ACE. RFK RFK Jr. thinks Thane Eugene Caesar may have killed father. There's a bunch of stories. So now, so now I hit Pater with putting that yeah. name in correctly right. uh, to see that. So that right. is that is interesting that he now is there anything 
Yeah, um, as soon uh, as he died, he's like, I want to tell people what I think. And right, right. Like some people are telling me to be silent. He's like, no, I want to speak out. And, and I'm like, good for you, except I don't think Sane killed him. I think Sane shot him, but I think another guy killed him. He goes, Lisa, but I don't know that. I don't know that. You know that, but I don't know that. Right. I think he did. <laughs> I'm like, okay, then you have to do what you believe. And and so uh, and so that's what he did. He made an Instagram post. He had a, a family member help him actually post it and put all the words in and stuff. But he wrote it. He drafted it. I sat there with him while he drafted it like six times and you know, it was his words. So, now, is there anything uh, yeah. more that we, uh, you know, with the JFK assassination, we still have those documents being held back and they were all supposed to be released and then they weren't. And Trump was going to order them to all be released, but then they still some were held back. Um, is there anything more coming? Like, is anybody litigating any freedom of information uh, is there any more well, files or data that we well, could possibly it, I, see? I was about to say, yeah, I was about to say no, but that's not true. And in my book, I talk about there's a lawyer in San Francisco, and I'm going to get his name wrong, but it's something like Anthony Bothwell, not Boswell, but B-O-T-H-M-A-S, something like that. You can check my book for the exact spelling. But he had FOIA'd the CIA for records on Thane Caesar and one of the police people who had done all the lie detector tests, this guy named Hank Hernandez. And again, listening to the tapes, it's clear that Hank Hernandez had worked for the CIA. He bragged about being in Venezuela and training their police there. That's not something an ordinary citizen off, you know, yeah. <laughs> off the street gets to do. Bizarre. You know, you're, you're going in under the auspices of the CIA. When you're, and the CIA did. They had a Venezuela training program, which I also cited in my book at that time. So clearly, that's the thing. So this lawyer foiled the CIA for records on both, and they denied them both on operational grounds, meaning they were definitely operatives of the CIA, and they their files are hot and sensitive, and they're not going to release them. Wow. Because they would give up sources and methods. And I thought that was pretty stunning. Now, separately, I had found um, there are online services where you can go and look up somebody's employment history or where they live or phone numbers. You right. know? Uh, don't all go stalk your favorite celebrity. Just don't do it. That's bad. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I looked up Bane Caesar and I went through like three or four databases. And they all said the same thing when I saw the first one. You'll see why I had to pay more because the first one said that Bane Caesar was a contract employee of the CIA. And I'm like, what? It's right there, and I could find this. And that's why I went to all these other databases, and they all said the same thing. And when they listed his places of employment, the CIA was one of them. Uh, GM was one of them. So I instantly looked up, does GM have a connection to the CIA? And oddly enough, in recent years, a former CIA, uh, one of the top people in the CIA had gone off to head GM. It was a woman, actually. Uh, so, so there clearly are some ties there. And he'd also worked for the Mormon Church, and the Mormon Church of the CIA had been in bed for a very long time. That goes back to the whole Hughes scenario. Um, Howard Hughes, you know, was surrounded. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Hughes was surrounded by two different warring factions of the CIA, because there was the Robert Mayhew faction. I found out that Thane Caesar had worked for Robert Mayhew, um, both for in. When, when, <laughs> in the context of Howard Hughes, uh, first, Thane Caesar had worked for Robert Mayhew for Bel Air Security, 
which was set up by Mayhew to protect Howard Hughes when he lived here in California. Bel Air is a community right next to Beverly Hills, but a little more upscale, a little richer, and it's a completely gated community. And that security service was set up by Robert Mayhew. All right, later, Robert Mayhew followed Hughes to Las Vegas, and Thane Caesar is seen in Las Vegas by a guy named John Meyer. John Meyer was one of the few people who was so close to Hughes, he was actually in the room with him, and he would talk to him on the phone. Mayhew just rode him back and forth. They weren't that close. But Meyer was like, at one point, the number two guy there. And uh, Meyer told me, uh, after I'd written an article about him, not having any clue that he knew anything about the RFK assassination, I'd written about him in the context of Watergate. That's a whole other story. But in, in my conversation with him, just before I left, he kind of dropped a bombshell on me. He's like, yeah, I met Hoover after RFK was killed, and he said, yeah, we know it's a Mayhew operation, but I'm powerless against the CIA. And at that time, I didn't know Meyer that well. I was pretty sure the CIA was blackmailing Hoover because I already had that evidence. Uh, but I, I didn't know that much about Robert Mayhew either. So in the years after that, then I went and really looked into it. And then when I met Meyer again, he read me from his diaries, his contemporaneous diaries. And he read the Monday before the election. The election was on Tuesday. Kennedy was shot right after midnight on Wednesday. So this is Monday. And Mayhew is telling him, don't go to L.A. There's no point, and I'm going to need your friendship with Don Nixon. You need to transfer Don Nixon to me, and I'm going to handle that relationship from now on. This is Monday, you know, June, what would that be, June 3rd. <laughs> and as I'm hearing that, I'm getting chills because it's like Mayhew clearly knew what was about to happen because Meyer was actually writing a speech for Robert Kennedy around anti-nuclear testing. That was a big thing he was doing for Hughes. And uh, so anyway, he read other diary entries, and it was just clear that Robert Mayhew was very much involved and probably ran the hit. And Mayhew is a very interesting character because when you talk about the hypnosis and the mind control, the group in the CIA that did the hypnosis experiments, the mind control experiments, the Manchurian candidate assassin type experiments. That was an area called the Office of Security. The Office of Security's main job was to protect the CIA from penetration from foreign agents. But it also, because it was so secretive, it became like the blackest of the black ops center of the CIA. So the really horrible things that were done were usually done out of the Office of Security. And those are the people who hired Mayhew to kill Castro for the CIA. And they hired him to kill Castro because he had a reputation of pulling off a successful assassination before that. And I wasn't sure which one, but I think I might have nailed it in my book. Maybe I'll leave that little tidbit for the readers. It's not a huge part of the story. But obviously, you know, the CIA is not going to try and kill Castro with a novice. That would be ridiculous, right? And Robert Mayhew, the uh, there's a tremendous amount of information about Mayhew, spelled M-A-H-E-U, for those that want to look this up. Um, and by the way, when you type in Robert Mayhew CIA, it has his picture and everything in his biography, like the mini version of it on the right side of the page. And then it says, people also search for Lisa Peace. <laughs> right oh, under there. Kidding. 
Oh, that's hilarious. You better lock your door tonight. You better set the alarm right now. I mean, this is, this is a son by the same name who has really tried to ding my book all over uh, Amazon. So do you feel like, you know, when when you said earlier, he has his name on him. (laughs) When you said earlier how you were able to go online and to look up uh, Thane Caesar and just using some of these like basic, you know, background, public background things that you can pay like 20 bucks, 30 bucks for. Do you think that um, in in some cases, a case like this gets so cold that nobody's hiding anything anymore? And and it just it's like, hey, you know what? It's been 50 years. It's been 60 years. There's a point at which either everybody's dead who has any interest in it or just they nobody's concerned about it anymore and and such simple the cia kept it so secret even within the agency they they would tell their people oh we didn't do that of course we didn't do that and so no one is really monitoring the shop right and yeah i did write one of the providers and i'm like why would you reveal a cia agent's employee you know, employment. And of course, I got no response to that particular. I asked more innocuous questions of others, like, where are the records from? And, you know, they're like, oh, you know, property records. And he'd bought two houses. So, of course, he had to list an employer to get the bank loan, you know. And but I, I thought so, that there was uh, never, <laughs> I thought there was never a scenario like you just said that it was a CIA. Uh, employee would ever be revealed that they always had some kind of a a front, like they worked for the Department of Defense or they worked for some other front uh, company, like the Valerie Plame. The Valerie Plame case was was like an example of that because from what I read, she was largely just like a desk worker and type of employee, but then it was turned into this big federal case over her name being re- revealed. Um, that I mean, the idea right. that you could go right. online into these public databases and see that this guy was CIA. That to me is, is strange in and of itself. What about his, if you did that today? Yeah. If you did that today, I'm pretty sure you won't find that about anybody. I'm I'm sure once I alerted one of those providers, they probably alerted the others and said, Oh, we can't show that, you know, could have just been a glitch, you know, for all I know, I might just gotten lucky. It is interesting. Kind of all in the same window. Once I found it in one, I went and searched a bunch at the same time and it, you know, the internet was still somewhat new and these services were somewhat new. And, you know, I, I don't think the CIA even had a clue how, how exposed some other people might be. Yeah, that's so, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Now, as we close it out, um, what's next for you? And tell us your website and all of that and how people can get the book, of course, and the title of the book. And then tell us what you have planned. Is there another book coming? Is are you taking up a different case? Uh. Tell us tell us <laughs> tell us a little about that too. All right, all right. First, I'd say the easiest way to find out what I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter, or at least you can go to Twitter even if you don't log in, you can still find me at twitter.com slash Lisa Pease and just you know see my feed and what's there. And that's You'll spelled P like in question. Paul, E A S like in Sam E. P-E-A-S-E, just for people. And, of course, if if you need that information, folks, you will be linking on all of our social media uh, to her book at Amazon as well. Continue on. That's great. That's great. And I, I do want to say, by the way, the book is not just about the Robert Kennedy assassination in the sense that I cover a lot of adjacent history and even some contemporary history. In fact, 
there was a, an assassination of Kim Jong Nam, who is the half brother of the current North Korean leader. And I actually tie that right to this case because there's a direct parallel. Hmm. And so it's like, it's not just about the past. It's about things that are happening right around us. And, uh, so anyway, so that's that. The book is called A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Robert F. Kennedy Assassination. Or the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. I was getting those mixed up. I think Robert F. Kennedy is the last part of that. Okay. And uh, you can find it easier by searching my name or, again, go to Twitter because I have a link to the book. I also have a link to the petition because Sirhan is 75. Even if you think he killed Robert Kennedy, technically in our country, you know, once you serve your term, you know, you do eventually get parole. That's the way the system works. And, of course, I don't believe for a second he killed him. I don't even believe he understood what he was involved in. I think he was framed without his knowledge with the use of hypnosis and possibly drugs, and I explain that in the book. But the petition is to write the governor of California and just say, give him a compassionate parole. He's 75. Let him go home. He has a brother who's alone who needs him. You know, it's like they're all they have. There's no other family left. Let the brothers reunite. Um, and... The last part of your question, what am I doing next? Well, I am working on a screenplay that is not on the Robert Kennedy assassination, but I, I actually had studied screenwriting at UCLA years ago, and I was writing screenplays, and I was kind of working on the book, and I was going back and forth, like, which needs my focus? And I just felt the tug of history. I thought, I have to tell this story first. If I don't do this first, God will never forgive me. And I really had that thought that, God wants me to tell the truth, and then I can write about anything else. But I have to tell this story, because information just kind of would come to me. You know, people would call me up and give me a lead, or, you know, I would go to the library, and a book would just, like, fall open to a page of something I needed to know. It was so weird. I mean, it's funny, because other authors in other cases have had those experiences. It, it is almost like you're being guided. And so I really appreciate that. But I'm hoping to do more screenwriting now because it's like I paid my debt to society. Right. Now it's time for you to uh, cash in and, and, and make some money for yourself uh, oh. with, with something like that. Well, thank you yeah. so much for being with us. I, I learned so much tonight uh, about this and I'm uh, just absorbing it. And uh, your book is fascinating and we highly recommend it. And uh, keep in touch with us and let us know if there's any breaking news. We'd love to have you back. That's great. That's great. By the way, the Dag Hammarskjöld was the UN secretary and who was killed in 1961, uh, shot down in a plane, and we're waiting for the final report. It's due any minute. So maybe I'll call you back when that's out because it's very similar to the Kennedy assassination yeah. in terms of the players and the motives. You know, it's all the same thing. All these assassinations. Yeah, what a crazy time, related, the 1960s. So. People don't today don't really appreciate all that was going on with the with the, the assassination of JFK and RFK and Malcolm X and and uh, Martin Luther King and and Martin the rioting and all of the you know everything that was going on. It was just a crazy crazy time. Lisa Peace, thank you so much for being with us. God bless and Godspeed. And uh, wow, what a great interview. We really appreciated her being with us. We went like almost an hour, which is great because this is going to be a great one for the archives as well. And we highly recommend her book. Again, her name is Lisa Pease, and that's spelled P like in Paul, E-A-S like in Sam E, P-E-A-S 
E. All right, that's it. We'll wrap up another show here. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.